And welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. This is our 23rd episode, and we're going to talk this episode with medical doctor Vienna Tran, who lives in Australia, where she grew up. She's a practicing physician there who has done research on space medicine and the health of astronauts for a study supported actually by NASA and the Australian Space Agency. She's also an alumnus of the International Space University, and she has much to educate us about the race to space and space medicine. I also ought to mention that she's a marathon runner as well as uh, doing volunteer work as a STEM mentor with young people ages 12 to 20, and she's a member of a band called The Remotes, and I want to welcome you, Vianna Tran. Glad to have you with us. Thank you so much, Michael. Glad to be here. And I know you wanted to have a conversation, and so this will be certainly, I hope, a conversation, but I have many things to ask you and many things to learn from you, as I know our listeners do. And uh, since uh, this is a conversation in the future, you're literally about 18 hours ahead of us uh, here in California, down under where you are now, I thought I'd begin by maybe talking with you about the future of space travel. Uh, is, th is there a timeline in your mind, for example, about human visits to Mars or other planets and when they're going to be safe? Uh, I know we need certainly much in the way of safety. We need much in the way of infrastructure. So if you were looking at a timeline, um, what does it look like? That's a great question. I suppose if we want to talk about the future, we have to go back into the past. And one of the big milestones that we had as human beings that we reached was in 1969 on July the 21st, when humans first landed on the moon. And you may remember that, that people were watching their televisions all around the world. It was very momentous. And that was a space race all on its own. That took an incredible amount of engineering and a lot of working together and risks and accidents and, and um, new innovation that people had never seen before. And it all happened very quickly, partly motivated by, by the natural curiosity that we all have and the natural um, propensity for exploration, but also because it was a race. And... Humans are such that when we're competitive, then 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 we're going to do things a lot faster. And so is so we had man landing on the moon, and um and and of course we know that that NASA achieved that. And you know what, Michael, we haven't been back since we haven't been back to the moon since the Apollo program, and. That is interesting to me because we've had decades and decades in which to do it, and instead, very appropriately, we've focused a lot on something things that are closer to Earth, um, um, the International Space Station, for example. We've we've innovated a lot closer to home, only four hundred kilometers up, in fact, and we've sent over five hundred people to space so far in history, and most of them have been to low Earth orbit, so. When you talk about the future, I think this is a very, very good time to be alive because we are able to witness the going back to the moon and onto Mars. It's finally happening and I'm so excited about it. Um, right now, we're looking at first going back to the moon. Baby steps, right? So we have... We have the Artemis program from NASA, for example, who they've just done a flyby or a, a loop around the moon and come back. And the goal, of course, is to land there first. And then the ambitious goal is to then go to Mars and land there. And if you ask me, the way that things are going in the world 
with private space companies and government space agencies alike. I would say by the end of this decade, we're going to have boots on Mars. Yeah, in fact, I was going to ask you about the private companies because there was just a British launch that went awry, unfortunately. Virgin was involved in that. That is Richard Branson's company. And now you've got Elon Musk, of course. He's got his fingers in so many pots, but also trying to uh, help us in terms of space travel. I'm just wondering... um, from your perspective, how much that speeded things up? Because you said a lot of competition and now private capital is in the game. Yeah, that's the competition. That's where it's at now. I think it's it's sped up so much because um, government agencies are fantastic, but they can only do so much. And it takes the innovation and the forward thinking of private in- private companies and individuals within those private companies to envision something bigger and push those boundaries, push that envelope. And I think that companies such as SpaceX and, and, and Virgin Galactic have been able to demonstrate that and work together, in fact, with government agencies. It's, n- it's not a competition between agencies and companies. Um, I think in the end, it's all it's, they, they all contribute to the same one mission of, of, of space exploration. And so I don't think we'd be where we'd be without, we are. I don't think we'd be where we are without these private companies. But nations are still in competition. In fact, I was looking at a kind of layout. Uh, United States is first, uh, Russia second, China's third, UK is fourth, Japan is fifth. You just still see the listing on that basis. And so there's real, still real competition going on. And oh, spend, we'll always expenditures. be nationalistic. Yeah. And nationalism <laughs> yeah. is a big driver of this. It's a huge driver of this. For sure. Of course there is competition. I think, I think where you have two or more... Uh, players in the game, then there's going to be some form of competition. But um, but I think all eyes tend to be on the private companies these days because they are well, they're what's leading the way. So wh- why would you not pay more attention to them? But um, th- having said that, I, I totally agree. Um, I, I think there's there's a lot of I would say healthy competition between nations and companies alike. Well, if we're going to have space travel, we have to have safety and we have to have the kind of health and medical procedures attended to that health that you have become so much identified with and that you're so much a part of. We have to particularly protect protect from radiation and uh, especially health effects from long duration, don't we? Yes, absolutely. We, we have a lot that we need to consider for human safety in space. There's lots of hazards in space. I like to say to especially a younger audience, that space wants to kill you. Of course, space is not sentient, but if it were sentient, it probably would want to kill you because there's nothing about space that is conducive to human survival. We're on this planet for a reason. But as stubborn as humans are, we have decided that uh, that we're going <laughs> and we are unstoppable. But yes, hazards. There's a lot of hazards. Microgravity, distance and isolation and radiation, to name a few. Well, also, a quote from you, when you said, current space medicine is messy and not glamorous. And you mentioned in the course of this discussion that viruses are more pathogenic in space, that sleeping is horrible, that you lose muscle mass and bone mass. I mean, you can just go through a whole catalog of things here that really almost would thwart the human desire to go to space. Yeah, except for the fact that when you think about it, uh, the International Space Station or whatever space station you go on, or a rocket, is um, is a little microcosm of a, a closed system of, of of protection, and when you go up, that here we are on spaceship Earth, 
right? We're protected by everything that we know. We rely on the animals, the plants, each other, systems. And all of that goes away when you are sitting 400 kilometres up in the International Space Station. And the only thing sitting between you and the hazards of space are the walls of that space station. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the space station because you've had some association with it. How does it help us move forward? What, what's it doing really to speed things up? Research, knowledge. We have so much to know. Uh, if I just talk about space medicine, which is a small part of the research that the astronauts on there do, then we we are learning about how microgravity affects the human body and the the things we rely on, like our food and our medicine. We are growing foods on the International Space Station to see which species grow better um, in microgravity and in that environment. We are looking at how bacteria and viruses respond to that environment. We are looking at how people exercise and the best ways to exercise to minimise those losses that you talked about. And it's, it's almost like studying medicine all over again. I spent six years in medical school, Michael, which to me is a pretty long time, but it actually felt pretty quick. And there was a lot of knowledge. I, I don't think, I, I didn't read every textbook. In fact, I read only parts of some textbooks. There's, the world of medicine is just huge. And you almost have to start from scratch when you do space medicine because the entire physiology is different. The, the foundation on which medicine is built is different. Well, I heard you were talking at one point about how we don't even realize, normal lay people don't realize the eyes change when you're out in space. They literally change. Yes, they do. What happens is that because of microgravity, the fluids in the body, which are used to 1G, suddenly are not under that force anymore and they shift towards the head and the chest. And that means that the brain is under more pressure and that means the optic nerve that connects the eyeball to the brain is under more pressure. So if you look at an image that they've that people have taken of a normal eyeball and an eyeball under the influence of microgravity, then you'll see the sort of tortuosity or kinking of the optic nerve that leads the eyeball to the brain. And that means essentially that your vision is compromised. It may not mean you go completely blind straight away and randomly. I don't think that's ever happened. But the other thing is that the fluid presses on the back of the eyeball and we don't fully understand it, but we think that this is the cause of long-sightedness in space. And you've been doing some bed rest studies um, with respect to gravity. Uh, what does your research show? I mean, I, I understand you had like uh, a number of people in bed for what, about two months? Yeah, long time, a long time. So um, this study was called Agbreza and it was conducted at the end of 2019 in Cologne in Germany. And many, many different teams studied these 24 participants. They had to lie in bed for, for, for 60 days, two months. And my team looked at the musculoskeletal system, but only one specific part, the gluteal muscles, the hip muscles. And what we wanted to find out from that study was what would happen firstly over 60 days of bed rest to these important gluteal muscles, which are essential for standing and mobilizing? And secondly, what would happen if we centrifuge these participants for 30 minutes a day? That means that they lie down um, in a centrifuge, a circle, a circular 
contraption that spins to produce centripetal force and the feet are on the outside and it spins as if it, it makes you feel as if you are standing in 1G again, um, but you're lying down. So the reason that we looked at that was to see whether centrifugation is an appropriate countermeasure or, or way to manage the losses that are experienced in 0G or microgravity. And what we found was actually 30 minutes of 1G a day is almost the equivalent of standing up for one for, for 30 minutes a day. And that's just not enough for our gluteal muscles. They need stimulation. They need they need something more than 1G, up to 9G if you're running. So if you imagine you're in microgravity all the time and you weight bear or do work for 30 minutes a day, then yeah, that's just not enough for our physiology to tell our gluteal muscles, hey, we've got to get stronger. There needs to be an exercise component in with the passive centrifugation. That's an important finding, and congratulations on the research. Mm-hmm. We're getting a lot of questions. We'll go to as many as we can. Uh, let's start out with Dave from Seattle who wants to know, how do you treat radiation damage that may occur in space? Radiation is very interesting in space. The background to that is that we have something very special around Earth that protects us from the dangerous space radiation. We have a magnetosphere that's generated from the Earth's core that is essentially provides protection and traps any harmful particles coming from the sun or from deep space in those Van Allen belts. Um, and so if you're in low Earth orbit or on Earth, you don't you receive hardly any of that. But as soon as you venture beyond those Van Allen belts, then you're exposed to high energy particles from the sun, you're exposed to the full spectrum of the sun's radiation, and you're exposed to cosmic rays and gamma rays from deep space. And what are we doing to protect? Well, the International Space Station was was designed decades ago, and it was designed with lots of considerations in mind from radiation protection to lightweightness to affordability of materials. So it's not the perfect shield for radiation in space. Things that we could do. Water is a really good shield for radiation, but we can't just put water in the walls of the space station. But, you know, it's something that someone can innovate. We can use different metals or different materials to shield. And, And I think... We haven't figured out this problem yet. If you actually go to a section of the NASA website and you look at the human research program, radiation is one of the highest priorities for research because it is one of the greatest risks to human health as we go forward. So my answer is we are not doing much yet because we don't know enough yet. And I, I ask all material science scientists out there to, <laughs> to quickly solve this problem before we go What about uh, CRISPR, modifying genes, uh, or what about artificial intelligence with respect to not only radiation but other using those as other means to help us move through space without hurting ourselves? That's a great question. I suppose when when we look at the scientific method, we want to see, to prove that something works and with good certainty, then we want to see in this case, the effects of space on people without these modifications. Say, say you CRISPR somebody and make them radiation protected, for example. You want to see what happens with the non, non-CRISPR people and the CRISPR people. 
but we haven't even sent the non-crispant people very much yet. We, we've sent 12 people to the moon, so either landed or orbiting in total. 12 people, that's an N or a sample size of 12. That's not enough information for us to know what sort of radiation effects we get beyond the Van Allen belts that we are protected from. So I think we need to send more people to space without those modifications um, and that fancy technology before we even think about doing something as, as serious and ethics demanding as CRISPR. Question from Midlands UK from Simon who wants to know, you researched the impact of artificial gravity on muscle health. When do you think artificial gravity is likely to be practical to implement on space mission? I think that if you are going to be in space for more than, say, a year, and you are, say, you're in orbit or you're going from one place to another, so deep space travel, then it could be practical. But we haven't quite gotten there yet. There's a lot of problems with centrifugation. The first thing is that the machine or the, the, the mechanism that you use needs to be quite large to have any effects. It needs to be huge. If anybody's seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, which by the way was was made in 1968, the year before we landed on the moon. If anybody's seen that movie, the 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 artificial gravity centrifuge that you, they use for the space hotel is huge. It's it's probably much bigger than the International Space Station. And constructing that is difficult for a start. Secondly, the, the other problem is that um, the longer the arm, the more consistent the gradient um, and the, the less nausea and fainting we will get for astronauts. So the longer the better, which means that it there needs to be a sweet spot between short arm and long arm centrifuges where it's, it's, it's practical enough to be constructed, but long enough that it's going to um, minimise the side effects of the centrifugation. And thirdly, we don't actually know whether it works. Like I said with my, uh, with my study, 30 minutes a day is not going to cut it for the glutes, but it has been shown in previous studies that 30 minutes a day is great for the cardiovascular system or the balance system, the neurovestibular system. So we've got to prove that it works first and that it's useful. And then we talk about practicality. So I think we're a long way away, really. Well, since you mentioned 2001, I'm prompted to ask you a little bit of a digressive question. I know that was an influence on you, and certainly many people like you who have fallen in love with space were influenced by Kubrick's movie. Um, did you read The Martian by Andy Weir? I haven't yet. Because that's also, I think, something that's influencing a lot of young people now in terms of space travel and since you're mentoring a lot of these young people with STEM, it's it's probably a good thing to read. But it brings up another question in my mind. Um, how important is art to the whole enterprise of going into space? I mean, that may sound a little bit illogical to some people, but not the case, right? Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I like to say to people, my mentees and the wider audience, that space is not just about STEM. So you've mentioned STEM a few times, Michael, and for, and that means it stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Some would call that the natural sciences. Some would call that the hard sciences. Uh, it is it involves numbers and involves objective evidence, and a lot of people are great at that, and that is very important for space. But if you just focus on the STEM, then you're missing an entire area or discipline 
that's the arts and humanities. And that's the, you could say it's the, the soft sciences or it's the, um, you, you use the word illogical, which is really funny um, because we use logic in art and humanities too. We do. And if we, if we involve people from all disciplines, whether they be artists, whether they be um, sociologists, psychologists, archaeologists, then space is going to become a lot more, at the end of the day, a lot more um, pleasant for humans and it's going to mean a lot to humanity when, for example, we make movies about space or we write books about space or, or show people what can be done, artist concepts um, to the general audience, then people are able to visualise the possibilities that, are, that, that, that we have in space. If I show everybody a diagram or a blueprint or a spreadsheet, then um, it's inspiring to some, sure it is, but it's not going to be inspiring for everybody. This is uh, something I'm delighted to hear you say, and we're very much on the same page here. I know you wanted to have a bit of a conversation. Um, I'm not going to go into my own personal history to any great degree, but for many years I was involved in something called the NEXA program, four letters that could fit into the computer programming at the time. And NEXA was an attempt to bring the sciences and the humanities together. There was at one point described as two cultures. There was something called the Snow-Levis controversy between C.P. Snow, who was a physicist and a novelist, and F.R. Levis, who was basically a literary critic. And the attempt was to find convergence. And there is so much convergence, and you've just converged on that convergence, which I thank you for. I'm going to converge on some more callers here. Uh, let's go to Juan in Mexico City. How do you see Juan wants to know consumer devices as health monitors in space, Apple Watch and such? Oh, well, one, I know a few people who are working on devices for space, and I think they're essential. I've got one of these right now, um, wearing one. And it's not a space one, it's an Apple Watch. I think wearable devices are going to be very, very useful. You and I might not wear very many wearable devices and uh, devices that collect data about our biological processes because nobody's doing research on you and me as far as we know but well maybe maybe apple is actually collecting data on me i don't know it's, when you um, look debatable. at when you look at the story behind tiktok uh, there may be a lot of research yes. on us coming out of china for that matter yeah i suppose i suppose you don't wear your phone but you you practically do put it on yourself for most of the day but astronauts are a whole different population because we are trying to find out so much about them think about trying to do research on such a small population of participants and trying to make meaningful conclusions about them. So we we can put ECG leads on, on, on um, I was going to say patients, participants. We can put, we can put watches, we can put um, all sorts of wearable devices on people who go to space to collect information, to make meaningful conclusions about how to improve these devices and how to improve our space technology, um, how to improve our space medicine so that people can thrive. So absolutely, one. I think that's a really great point and wearable devices are going to play a big role. They already do. And let me thank Juan for that question. And since you mentioned astronauts, uh, Vienna, I'm inclined to ask you about Charles Bolden, who I know was a major influence on you. He was an astronaut. He was in four space shuttle missions, also a retired Marine Major General American, how did he influence you and why? 
That takes me back, Michael. Um, I want to tell you a little story about how I even got into space medicine because I haven't even explained that. There was, I used to be in an orchestra. I, I promise this is going somewhere. I used to be in a youth orchestra that Excuse me, what instrument did you play, if I may? Viola. Viola, okay. <laughs> and I left it, and then I heard that they were playing The Planet's Suite by Gustav Holst, my favorite classical music suite, which is, um, it is basically, it's a suite of, of pieces, and each piece is about a planet. And I asked the conductor, can I join just for this season so I can play The Planets? It's been my lifelong dream. And he said, yes. And so we rehearsed and practiced and, and, and we said, he said, um, oh, we're actually playing some of these pieces at this space conference that's coming to Adelaide. It's called the International Astronautical Congress. And I was like, oh, okay. At that time, I was actually feeling very disenfranchised with life because I wanted to be an astronomer when I was younger, astronomer, not astrologer. Um, it, and I, I figured that it would be difficult having a life as a scientist and I turned to medicine for for personal development and for job security and anyway I was I was feeling that way because I still wanted to do something to do with space deep down and this space conference was coming to Adelaide and I thought oh you know whatever I might be able to might be able to see a little bit as I'm on stage playing the viola with my with my uh, orchestra mates so I I said, yes, I'll actually just register for this for this conference. Um, the student prices were cheap, and so I did. And I thought, oh, I'll just walk around and see what's see what's going on with this conference. It probably does doesn't have any bearing to me. And it spoilers, it did. <laughs> because I looked at the program and there was something to do with space medicine in it somewhere deep within the program booklet. And I thought, well, this we might actually be onto something. So I attended this session and I attended a few other sessions with my friend Carl, who's also on office hours. And then Carl pointed out this this guy walking towards me in the corridor one time and he said, oh, you should go and take a picture with him. You should say hello. So I did. I didn't know who he was. It ended up it was Charles Bolden. And I said, oh, hello, um, I'm interested in space medicine. I've just discovered at this conference. And he said to me in... I'm going to butcher it because I, I'm I'm Australian and he's he's not. But he said, you can do anything you will put your mind to and you can be one of the first innovators. You can be one of the experts in space medicine. And I thought, really, I can be an expert in this field? And I think that's what kicked it off because somebody of his standing um, and of his significance told me that I could be an expert in my field. And that gave you confidence. What, that 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 gave me confidence. Or ambition, or both. Oh, absolutely! It 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 renewed my interest in space, and it made me realize I could marry space and medicine together and forge my own pathway. So, Charles Bolden, if you're listening to this, you mean a lot to me, even though you don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we have some listeners who I know. It would mean a lot, too, to have you answer the questions that they're posing. This is Laura from Beaumont, Texas, who says, what is being researched in space that might have very real applications back here on Earth that the general public might not even realize are connected to space medicine? Good question. What's, Thank you, Laura. What's being researched here on Earth that may be connected to space medicine? Yeah. Is that the question? Well, mm. what is being researched that has applications 
that would be connected to space medicine that we might not even realize. In other words, what is space medicine perhaps going to reveal to us that we can use in a practical medical way mm. that will help us? I like to use the phrase space for Earth and Earth for space because when we do research for space medicine, then we also benefit research and life on Earth. And when we do Earth medicine and we do research there, then it also benefits space. Um, one example that I've talked about before in, uh, in previous conferences is telehealth. We all lived through COVID and a lot of health systems had to change to suit the new health model. And one of those was telehealth. I thought, why hadn't telehealth been been thought of before COVID? But but I think I think the pandemic actually actually kickstarted uh, a, a new systems change in video conferencing and and phone calls between medical practitioners and and their patients, so that we could minimise um, travel to the clinic, and so that we could minimise the the costs and the environmental aspects associated with that. So it was it was kind of a a, a, um, a, a good side effect. Of, of, of the pandemic, many good side effects, in fact, office hours being one of them. And telehealth is conducted over large distances. And I think so can space medicine. Space, when we, when we go to space, there is a doctor on board usually, but in the cases where that doctor can't, can't do everything, we need specialist assistance from Earth. And with the International Space Station, they're only a few seconds away. So telehealth is certainly something that we have done very well on Earth, and especially in places where that are rural and remote and distant, such as places in Australia, um, or in low-income countries where we have smaller devices and cheaper devices that are being innovated by small companies that could also be used in space too. So... So um, yes, I think I think that's certainly one aspect. And in space health, we we want to take small, compact, low cost devices to space because it costs money to launch weight, and so we can apply that learning to Earth too, and you know, and and make health on Earth more efficient. There's so much we can talk about when it comes to applications. Well, this brings up another question, though, that I know is close to your heart because I think you said space is your one true love. And obviously, you believe in space and all that can, all that we can reap from going into space and so forth. But you often hear the argument, and I know you've heard it: we should attend to our own problems here on Earth first. We shouldn't be doing space exploration if we're going to spend money. The money ought to be spent here at home, not out there. What do you say? I say, why not do both at the same time? Um, they say that every dollar that's spent in space is equivalent to more than that dollar on earth. So what we do in space and and around space actually has benefits and it has trickle down effects to our earth population. And that's something that I think people find it hard to grasp unless they're they're told that fact because Space is over there, up there, and Earth is down here. So how could they possibly be related? There's a vacuum separating physically uh, us and space. But the fact of the matter is that um, that the, the amount of research, 
the amazing research that we do in space on the International Space Station and with things like satellites that, that give us telecommunications, GPS, images, weather predictions, all of this is essential to our life on Earth. In fact, I know some people from International Space University who did a project on a day on Earth without space, which I thought was fascinating. We get our internet from space. We, you know, we do our banking. We rely on that. We we use Google Maps or Apple Maps to get around. Think of something now that you do in your daily life that doesn't involve space because we've, we've adapted our lives to fit around that and it's made our lives so much better. Um, if we use it correctly, so so no, I think I think the money that we spend on space is money that we spend on Earth. And your love for space, and um, well, it's even evident in the blouse you're wearing. I see there are planets and suns and various kinds of stars and so forth, which people who will be listening to this unfortunately won't be able to see. But we're on Zoom now, so I can see it, and um, it, it it gets us to the we'll get to some more questions that are coming in here. But it gets me to the question of where this love for space began with you. I, I've read accounts, different kinds of narratives, out with your father, looking at the sky, that sort of thing, going to observatories at a young age. Something really clicked in you, though. I mean, can you get to the what we call the epiphany moment, you know, that moment where illumination came and you thought, this is climbing this stellar ambition uh, even before you met the astronaut. This is what I want to do. This is what I want to devote myself to. I couldn't tell you a specific example, but I think I was about five or six years old and my father took me to an observatory close to home and it was a big white dome that had an opening in the top of it so that a telescope could see through it and we'd sit on benches that lined the inside of the dome and the host would would show us things like the moon and the stars in great detail and to be honest, I can't that I can't tell you what about that was so impacting to me that it still lives within me today. Uh, I've uh, we live in a wonderful world. I've I um and my father has been able to well my family really and and later my teachers and my friends and the people in my life have shown me me so much about that world. But it, I it was just I always just came back to space. Um, I think it must be the how far away it is and how other, literally otherworldly it is compared to what we can see here on earth. I think it's the mystery and the curiosity that it sparked in me that, that lives on in my brain and my heart. And, um, I, I just haven't been able to shake it. I wish I could sometimes because <laughs> space is so difficult. <laughs> I don't think you're going to be able to shake it. That would be my uh, assessment. Uh, it's too deep in your DNA now, I think. Speaking of your DNA, uh, you know, parents have a wonderful immigrant story. I mean, they came here with nothing. You've described them as troopers. Uh, I mean, it's not an uncommon story for people who come to the shores of Australia or America and so forth, but each story is distinctive in its own way. Talk a little bit about your family history, and then we'll go to some more questions coming in. My parents grew up in Vietnam, and they grew up in a war-torn place, and they figured that they had to escape. I can't even fathom what sort of decisions and thought process they had to go through to make that decision because I, to escape from, from imminent danger, that, that's, um, that's terrifying to me, to physically have to escape um, and on, a, on a 
very unseaworthy boat too. And it's so unfortunate that that war happened. I, I say that there are no winners in wars. I, there aren't any. And no, and then they had to, they were the ones that suffered. So they and their fam, my mother's family and my father separately came to Australia on a boat with nothing but the clothes on their back. And they had set up a new life here in Australia and then they met here in university. Um, and that instilled in me a lot of very, very good values because although I'm Australian, I was brought up on a lot of Vietnamese values, um, how family is so important and the importance of hard work and generosity. And I'm so grateful for that. I had that upbringing. Um, and I'm also so grateful about the, the government at the time that helped these immigrants so much in um, in their, their starting their new life and welcoming people because that that wouldn't have happened without that sort of that sort of support and assistance. So that's my parents' story, and I'm I'm extremely proud of them and and ever grateful for the way that they helped set me up. I wouldn't be here speaking to you today if it weren't for them. That's a wonderful story, and I should give a footnote that family is important in Australia as well. Uh, there's a marvelous this is a recommendation um, saga. It's like a novel, but it's called A Place to Call Home. It's one of the best. It was on Australian television originally. Now you can see it on, uh, I think it's on Amazon and Netflix maybe, or certainly one or the other. It's a little plug for something I really found entertaining, enjoyable, and remarkable cinematography of Australia. Here's Keith from the UK, from London, who wants to know, what can we do to reduce light pollution so more people can experience a dark night sky? I don't think engineers who build street lights or billboards have the stars in mind when they build these things. Um, I've, for one, in, in cities and suburban areas, it's almost impossible to minimise all light pollution. You, you have to go out into the country these days. Um, even, you know, even if you do your best to, to, to point the lights downwards and, you know, change, change aspects of the current lighting, there's just too much light around. Um, that's why they call it pollution. So we do have to go out into the country. I suppose um, I, it's it's a it's a tricky question. If if once once you engineer the lights, the question is how do you minimize the amount of light? And there's probably a lot of things within big cities that can be turned off at night, but I think that would upset a lot of people. So, so Keith, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that mystery. Um, <laughs> I, I think, I think that it's still yet something to be looked at if people actually want to look at it. And I think there's a very small part of our population, i.e., hobby astronomers, that that would be interested in that. But unfortunately, they're a minority. We've had more light pollution because people feel if there's more light, there's more likelihood of safety. But the problem is, you know, how do you address the safety issue? It's kind of attendant to that. That's my two cents. Uh, because I've seen, you know, light exponentially increase. Um, and that has to do with also our grid and our resources. And so there's a problem there as well, overusing them. But I've got a question here, a little technical maybe, but interesting from Dave, uh, David uh, up in Seattle. So what air pressure do you use in space, such as the space station? And how high of pressure would you use for hyperbaric oxygen if you use hyperbaric oxygen chamber in space? 
The answer is I don't know the exact figures. I'd imagine that the air pressure would be would would be similar to what we have here on Earth. Um, and that and the the mix of 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 gases, nitrogen and oxygen and so on, would also be very similar. I don't think we've had a hyperbaric chamber in space. That would require a lot of engineering, a lot of heavy materials, as well as um, a lot of oxygen under high pressure that would be very costly to the, to space programs. What pressure would you use? Um, I, I think of it in terms of I think of it in terms of how deep you go underneath the sea, and I think I I, I think you could probably pressure it to a few meters, but the question is why. And I think you may be getting at health reasons for hyperbaric chambers. We do have one um, in Adelaide where I'm from, and that's to help with infections and wounds a lot of the time, but it's also to help with diving medicine. And um, I think there's probably a place for hyperbaric chambers, whether they be, you know, small enough to cover your knee or big enough to for you to sit in. Um, but I think more research needs to be done on the benefits of such things um, in overall. But I, yeah, I, I wouldn't know exact figures. That's that's great. I'll have to look at that. Look that up, David. Well, this is a little bit of a conundrum question, maybe, but I'm interested in your response to the argument that you often hear since you mentioned diving and uh, exploration. Uh, we've been talking about exploration of space. What about those who say it's as valuable, maybe more valuable to explore the depths of the ocean. There's more down there that we don't know about, just like there is out in space. Yeah, why not do both? <laughs> I, I think I think the, the the point of it all is that we we do do both, and the, the, yes, you're probably right in that we know more about our immediate space around Earth than we do uh, underneath the ocean. I say that space wants to kill you, but probably being underneath the ocean wants to kill you as well. Unfortunately, there have been deaths of divers that have gone as deep as the Mariana Trench. But we haven't had any deaths in space. If you if you don't count people who are very, very close to Earth who are either landing or taking off, we haven't actually had any deaths in space, which is really good. Um, it's also remarkable, good. isn't it? It is. It is. I'm sure it's bound to happen. And that's another story. But... I think we can explore both. The the thing about well, the challenger comes to mind that, too, though. Unfortunately, I mean, that was death true. in space. Yeah, that's true. Space is infinite, though, and if we want to talk about extending our civilization beyond Earth's bounds, then I think space has a lot more um, opportunities for for that civilization. You think there are civilizations out there, exobiology or some kind of extraterrestrial life? Uh, most bets say Possibly. yes, but mm. who knows, huh? <laughs> who knows? Well, you know a lot. Maybe you can answer some more questions for us. This is a fascinating one from Jeff in Chicago who says, how concerned are we about, or I would add, should we be about an Andromeda strain event? How concerned are we? Well, th there's a group of scientists looking at that. There's They're called astrobiologists, and they look at possible life forms that could be found outside of Earth. We, we do a lot in our um, our designed of missions to make sure that we not only minimize contamination of space and other planetary bodies, but also that they don't contaminate us. 
And so we we do our quarantine measures like we would do on Earth. How concerned are we? If we happen to get a strain, then that's unfortunate. But it's not inevitable. Um, and I think we've got good enough protections in place that we can minimize that risk. Plus, we would probably send not humans but robots to a place first to check it out and to do experiments to find if there was life there before we put our humans at risk of such things. So hence why we've got rovers on Mars and we've got we've had rovers and things on the moon and we can look with advanced telescopes and other devices to look at biosignatures, which are indications of life. So we've got a lot of measures in place and investigations that we take before we even think about sending humans. Can't we do it all with robots though? Why do we have to send humans? Because that's what human exploration of space is all about. Robots are are made by humans to, to investigate and help set up, but at the end of the day, if, if we just send robots and don't send humans, then we're defeating the purpose of human space exploration, which is not only inspiring to, to many around the world, but it's also very useful for space medicine purposes because we get to learn how the human body changes when we physically send the human being out there rather than the robot. Our guest is Dr. Vanna Tran. She's with us from Australia, and Josh is with us from Pittsburgh, and he wants to know, what is an aviation medical examiner? That is a person who is qualified to examine pilots and determine whether they are fit to fly. I was fortunate to qualify to do that job about mid last year. It was it was a wonderful course and um, I learned a lot about a different aspect of medicine which we can call as an umbrella term occupational medicine. And I, I like to describe it as in aviation medicine and occupational medicine, we look for problems. Whereas in hospital medicine, we have problems and we figure out why they're there. So that, in a nutshell, is what a DAMI is, a designated aviation medical examiner. You ready for a flight surgeon seat, Vienna? Sure am. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here's Mike from Brooklyn says, Is space travel the only sustainable way to maintain human life in the long term as it seems the Earth is imploding? Well, I would give that an assent somehow, especially with climate change, but I don't want to sound too pessimistic here. But I think uh, if we're going to survive, it might be through space travel. Your thoughts? There is a non-zero chance that something like that is going to happen on Earth, whether it's a nuclear accident or the slow burn of global warming. Or an asteroid. <laughs> or an asteroid, exactly. Although we do have scientists also looking to deflect or minimize the um, asteroid impacts uh, and, and and looking out for them quite closely it makes it makes like global news every time an asteroid even comes close to close to coming near earth but um, yes in that in the case where there's a non-zero chance that we can't prevent everything so we need to put in all the possible countermeasures and contingencies that we can and that includes putting a civilization somewhere else so that we um, we don't completely get wiped out. Here's Eric from Washington, D.C. Given the bounce back of common respiratory diseases after two years of COVID isolation, what does that imply for long-term separation of colonists from Earth? Will we need a new set of vaccines for both groups every time we reunite? I think we'll continue to need the, the vaccines that we already have. But 
I wonder how obsolete the current vaccines will become because things like the polio virus and measles, mumps and rubella are probably screened out in the population that we do eventually send to Mars. So we're not going to catch it from anybody else on the planet, hopefully. So do we really need the vaccines that we have? As also with with vaccines that we eventually we might we might need new vaccines um they're bringing out new covid ones all the time i think but we if we make new vaccines for people on mars then people on earth are going to ask questions about how come they can't have the vaccines because there's every risk that they will also have that same mutation of the virus or bacteria so that remains to be seen i think that infectious diseases is really, really fascinating because we are dealing with an organism that that uh, essentially um, lives in conjunction with us or competes with us, and they change their DNA a whole lot more quickly than a human does. Um, so, if you ask if 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 you bacteria and humans go to war, the bacteria will win in space. So we need to innovate a lot more when it comes to infectious diseases and we need to watch out for new infections that come up. So that's why all this research is so important and that's why we need to send humans. So what you said before has to be modified to some extent. Nobody wins in a war except bacteria in space win in a war. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's the only caveat. (laughs) Uh, Again, we're talking to Vienna Tran. Thank you for all the good questions that are coming in. Let me go to some more. Robert from Los Angeles wants to know, what medical experiments and research can be done in space that are not possible to do on Earth? I I don't know details, but things like growing plants in microgravity or growing crystals in microgravity, they grow differently in those environments. When you... I think kids love this. When when you um, uh, flick a lighter, then... A flame that you that you create in space is actually spherical and not flame shaped, because of that gravity. I, I don't know what that has to do with experiments that you can do, but I, I just think that's a really cool concept. Um, things with with fluids and surface tension you can do in microgravity. Having said all that, though, when I talk about microgravity, we can actually generate that on Earth with parabolic flight, which is when you've got a, a, a an aircraft that that um, goes to a height and then suddenly drops. And during that free fall, you get a short period of microgravity. So I suppose I'd I'd better correct that and say long-term microgravity experiments can only be done in space for now. And some more of your questions. Uh, Josh from Pittsburgh wants to ask about microgravity. He says, microgravity effects often manifest when returning to gravity. Could we mitigate effects by eliminating the need to return to gravity, i.e., Flora and fauna have demonstrated remarkable adaptability. Orbital civilization thoughts? Part of the point of my research was that if the gluteal muscles get so weak during microgravity, then then they are going to suffer when they go back to a gravity field. They'll lose their mobility, function, and strength. And that that is... Um, that is provided that you go back to a gravity field. <laughs> so, so if you never go back, I suppose your body would have to continually adapt, but it would still be under stress because it's fighting with its own DNA that's telling it that we're used to, to living and growing in a normal gravity field. So I would say that you, you're not going to get off scot-free just because you stay in space. But yes, I agree. There's a lot of things that happen when you go back to Earth. 
more research needs to be done on that though and um, more research needs to be done on how how long we can really truly spend in space um, probably a lifetime but the effects of that would need to be researched we what makes you hypothesize that we could spend a lifetime I mean a lifetime would differ from person to person but the duration seems pretty long when you speak of lifetimes if we put our mind to it, I'm sure, and we, we get the right participants and the right astronauts, I'm sure we could spend a lifetime in space. We just need to put the countermeasures there. A lot of preparation, right? Yep. Um, and dedication. And, a, and dedication and expense. Uh, here's uh, Gerald from Richmond, British Columbia, who wants to know, for the co- well, interesting fact he poses here. For the cost of sending a single human to Mars, one could send 42 robots, rovers, drones, and perhaps a a Tesla. What approach do you think is right? Well, you've answered this before, I think. You you, you mm-hmm. want humans there, but he's kind of asking not to be necessarily uh, have it both ways. Um, that is, why not use mm-hmm. when you're spending less, not only robots but rovers, drones, and so forth. The question is: Are you using money as the only currency? Because you're sure you can talk about cost and cost of of things in the currency that. The, you know, in money. But what would you think if we had sent 42 robots to Mars and never ever, ever in our lives sent a single human to Mars um, to, to, to explore that for ourselves and only ever saw data that came up on a computer screen on Earth that the robots had collected? I just don't think that would be very... Um, very scientific of us to not extend and further the research that the robots that provide. So yes, I think eventually we're going to send humans, but and we send robots first. But we have to have both in order for space exploration to become of any meaning. And here's Simon from the UK who asks a question that uh, I think you could answer from a personal standpoint. He says a medical career is often hectic and involves long working hours. How do you prefer? To unwind and de-stress. Well, you've got a first of all, you got a band that you're part of. I assume, <laughs> I do marathon running. I mean, those are I mentioned those in the introduction. I'm just sort of backtracking here. But anything else you want to add to that? Yeah, uh, both those things I was going to talk about. Uh, I love being in the remotes band, and uh, we make some pretty great songs. And running is fantastic. It t- takes it ticks a whole lot of physical and mental well-being boxes. So I, I recommend um, outdoor self sports to anybody. The only thing I would add to that is I actually happened to give a talk to some new incoming doctors that are coming this year to our hospital, and I put the pyramid of Maslow's hierarchy of needs on it. Now that it's it's a model developed by sociologists that looks like a pyramid and has physical essential needs at the bottom. And the idea is that you need to meet the needs of food, water, shelter, safety and such things before you move up the ladder or the pyramid and you you look at things like um, a, a cognition, a job, self-actualization, self-development. So I would say the things that I do to unwind and de-stress are things that I need to do, which is eat food and sleep and exercise. Um, it, you cannot do anything else with your life until you have ticked those needs, um, not, not in the long term anyway. And I, and I learned that pretty quickly when I became a doctor is that you, you can't just survive on coffee and, uh, and late nights. Um, it, you've got to look after yourself and you can turn that into rest and recreation. I think Maslow was a psychologist, I believe. 
I may be wrong about that. Um, but the hierarchy of needs still is very relevant and I think important in our lives and ought to be. Um, there's one final question from Robert in Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing. Well, I think you might laugh too when you hear the question. If presented the opportunity, would Vienna be willing to spend the rest of her life in space? I am unsure. <laughs> it, that that is that remains to be seen. I think I need to see the state of the world and the state of things before I decide that. If I if I decide that climate change actually does take over the planet in my lifetime, then then maybe I would want to spend the rest of my life in space. It depends on what I'll be doing. I would really like to spend the rest of my life leaving some sort of legacy and leaving something behind that will benefit other people. And if I'm going to space in order to help others to a large degree and make an impact, then that would give me purpose and that would push me towards staying in space long term. But I also have spent all of my life here on Earth and I've built my my network and my family um, my, my, my friends and my family, I've done all that here on earth and I see no reason why I can't stay on earth while also doing space medicine. I'd like to go to space, but I'd probably at this stage like to come back, but that remains to be seen. We'll, we'll see how things go over the, 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 the next little while. And I might change that answer. Well, it seems to me that you have a great deal of purpose as well as passion and you've contributed a great deal. And my hat goes off to you and my respect as well as admiration for all that you've accomplished. Maybe one final question. Um, I heard you at one point talking about kindness. Why is that important to you? A little offbeat question. I realize we've been talking all about space and medicine and so forth, but where does kindness fit in for you as a physician, as a researcher, or as a human being? I think it is part of being human. I know it's part of being human because that's my experience as a human being. It's easy to talk about kindness and compassion in a physician sense because you are in a position, a privileged position, where 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 somebody is putting their trust in you to help them. You're in a position of, of, of power and also in a position to extend your time and your kindness to that person. And really when they come and seek help from you not only are, they're not just looking for for you to fix them most of the time they're looking for your your compassion your listening um your understanding and your your commitment that you will help them it's it's um it's a deeply humbling profession for me and it brings out the kindness in in many many any many physicians uh, including myself but as a human being, I just think that we, we're all on this spaceship Earth together, so why not help each other and pay the act forward and be kind? Well, it's been delightful talking to you and enlightening, and I thank you so much for the time you've spent with us, and I think we'll be hearing more from you, and I'm going to be listening to the remotes. So appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Well, I just want to bid everybody adieu and give many thanks to all of you who joined us for today's episode or who've joined us in the future. To find out more about Gray Matter with Michael Krasny, simply go to graymatter.show and consider joining up with our growing community of participants who also are members, and we welcome new members. Thanks, too, to our outstanding Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And special thanks to our special guest for this episode, Vienna Tran. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly 
at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.